Thanks for joining us today on the Port City Church Podcast. With multiple campuses existing within Southeastern North Carolina, our mission is to be helpful and hopeful as we reach people and help them walk with God. To learn more about the heart behind our church, we encourage you to visit us at portcity.church. Hello, everybody. How's everybody doing? Good. We want to welcome all of our uh, campuses that are gathered, our friends in Leland down the hall and friends in uh, Newburn. And uh, I actually have, uh, I've actually heard lots of cool stories from people uh, that gather out west uh, in their home. And uh, we got to hear from, from those folks. And also, I know today my daughter is watching. She's up at the lake with a bunch of friends. So, hey, Michaela. And I'm glad you guys, all your friends are watching us today. So, they'll be all excited. And they got a shout out. So, we're uh, continuing our series called Enough is Enough, and this is all about perfectionism. And today, if you are a perfectionist, we are going to be talking about your favorite subject. We're going to be talking about your weaknesses, the very things that you try to avoid. Now, last week, uh, this is part three, so if you've not uh, you know, been a part or seen the messages, you'll be able to catch up by watching those later on. But last week, I gave an exercise uh, that basically talked about leaving dirty dishes in your sink. And a lot of you guys took this incredibly seriously. And I appreciate all the sink updates that I have gotten over the last uh, few weeks. People stop and go, Mike, there's dishes in my sink right now. And you know what? I'm actually okay. Uh, And in fact, I have one of my friends, uh, he's a perfectionist, and he and his wife were, he told me this. They were about to go for a walk. They just finished cleaning up for dinner. They're going to try to get in a walk between... uh, we got dark and so they wanted to leave and I'll just leave the, leave the kitchens in the sink. And he said, he heard my voice in his head. It's okay to leave the dishes in the sink. And so he went on a walk. And you know, if you've probably done this, right, you go on a walk and you can't even enjoy your walk because you're just mad about the mess you left behind you. So he's working on this and he's doing it. And he tells me that he kind of experienced some victory in it. So he got back home. In fact, he went to bed with the dishes in the sink. And he sent me a picture to show you uh, this. This is what a perfectionist version of a messy sink is. Look at this. I'm like, dude, I call that storage. What are you talking about? I was like, that's your messy sink? So it's all perfectly arranged from, you know, and uh, what he said is the next morning, because he couldn't take anymore. He was trying to rush out for work. He said, I got time. I'll clean the dishes real quick and I'll put them all up and then we can get done. And he was in such a hurry, he broke one of the glasses and it takes like 30 times as long as it would have. And so a disaster. So I would have just left it like that because that'd be perfect. You could just leave it like that for a long time. So I appreciate um, all, all the updates. We're talking about a specific kind of perfectionism that paralyzes you and, and robs you of joy. The idea in this is not that we're gonna be content with messes or that we're gonna be content with doing you know, sort of half effort or not doing our best or it's sort of a dimi- uh, diminishment of, uh, of excellence or anything. Um, we're not trying to get you to use to living in a messy house. What we're trying, what I'm hoping you'll learn how to do, what you'll get used to is not having to be in control and not having to have everything perfect before you can enjoy what is in front of you. And a lot of us end up missing so much of our lives because of that, because we're just always on to the next things, thinking that somehow if we can just get this thing right, then we'll finally be able to enjoy everything and our lives just continue to pass us by. And not only that, but the pressure that you put on yourself and other people around you is crushing. So we've been looking at this from this perspective using uh, Matthew chapter five, uh, right in the middle of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, these two verses, the end of chapter five and the beginning of six. And I, instead of reading it as the closing of one chapter and the beginning of a new one, I just pushed them together and just read them through. And it helped me to see this a little bit different, different way. And it reads like this in Matthew chapter five, verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, 
as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, this is not a command for you to go and to be better than you already are. This is actually a way of God inviting us to say, to exist in the fullness that is the fullness that your heavenly Father exists in, to exist in fullness as your heavenly Father exists in fullness, to sort of learn how to live in a way, to bear his image in a way, to receive what he's given you in a way that actually reflects how he is, who he already is. So to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect is not to modify your behavior to the standard that is his, but rather to exist in the fullness that he exists in. It reads much differently. So we see this to be perfect is the first command. Then the second part says this, starting in verse one of chapter six, it says to be careful. There's a warning to be careful, not to practice your righteousness in front of others, not to practice your righteousness in front of others in order to be seen by them. For if you do, you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. And this again, because we read this in sort of a Western American mindset, we think of this as a threat. If you don't do this, you're not gonna get rewarded because we have this sort of legal view of the world, this, this rule of law that we live in. And what he's saying is this, he says to the invitation is to, to exist in the fullness that your heavenly father exists in and to be careful not to practice or demonstrate or display the thing about you that you think is going to make you finally worthy. To display the thing about you that, that is finally gonna make you think that you're good. To not to do that in front of others in order to get their approval. Because if you do that, you actually forsake what the father has already made available to you. That's the way it would read. If you keep trying to prove yourself and to prove your worth by what other people think of you, by how well you are perceived by other people, you are forsaking what God has already made available to you to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we've been talking about this over the last couple of weeks. If you have your Bibles, you wanna I'll play along today. We'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It's a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Corinth. And it's one of the most... Um, it's one of the most difficult passages to, un, to, to kind of get your head around or your heart around. And it's also one of the most freeing passages. So that's what I want us to look at um, today. And we've been talking about perfection in a very specific way. The pressure that crushes you, that cripples you, we define perfection like this. That perfection is the impossible demand that we place on ourselves in our relentless effort to achieve what we perceive as approval. The challenge is it's your pursuit, what you are relentlessly pursuing in order to perceive, right? To achieve what you perceive as approval, to achieve what you perceive as enough for other people or for yourself. And to perfectionism, to live as a perfectionist is to live underneath that burden that literally never ends. There is no such thing as enough. And if you live in this long enough, what you'll find is that in your perfectionism, you become intolerant of the very process that is actually necessary for you to become. Part of the problem in our world is the way we've learned about education, how we're supposed to do things in our lives. You get educated and you master what it is that you have been educated in, and then you execute on that mastery for the rest of your lives. And a lot of us treat our own spiritual formation. I need to figure out what I need to know. Once I know it, I master what I know, and then I execute what I know for the rest of my life. And you sort of fail to recognize that what's happening in your own spiritual formation, that's not about what you learn and how you execute on what you learn. It's who you become. It's what's actually happening, what's actually forming in you. There's a process by which that happens. It's a relationship with God that unfolds. It unfolds in front of us. We see more and more and more of Him. We sang about that this morning. We see more and more. There's more and more and more to see, to discover. It's a relationship. 
You know this, the things that I knew about my wife uh, 20 years ago, I know things totally different today. There's, there's, there, it's, there's an unfolding. We learn more and more and more about who one another are. It's a relationship. It's the same thing with our relationship with God, except it's sort of infinitely that way. But to think that by the time you've kind of got your theology worked out, if you've read the Bible four times, whatever your story is, to think that you now have God figured out, now you just got to apply that, your God is way too small. He continues to unfold and reveal himself. That's the thing that excites me perhaps as much as anything else at my own personal journey in this sort of pursuit is that there's so much more of what it is that God seems to be showing and revealing and availing to me that makes me more and more excited about what he's doing in our church, what he's doing in my life and real genuine hope for the future. I think a lot of us, if you're like me, you, you've learned a lot of things. Maybe when you were younger, you learned a lot of things. Then you get to a point in your life, and all of a sudden, you start learning something or seeing something in a completely new way. And what I did, I don't know if you're like this, but what I did is when I first started doing this, my first thought was, oh my gosh, I don't know anything. This happened to me as a pastor when I was wrestling with um, what the gospel meant, and you start to learn new things about the Bible and the gospel, and you're like, oh my gosh, I don't know anything. I don't have any business doing this. I should quit. And you just go through this whole pity party um, in, in your own life. And I want us to think about this and how we learn and grow and become because that process is so important. And perfectionists, we have just, we sort of despise the process. We're intolerant of not being able to do what we ought to do or what we think we ought to be able to do when we ought to be able to do it. The other thing that happens when we think about weakness, a lot of us have grown up thinking that our weaknesses are just sort of bad traits. We're not organized, we're not this. And so we've learned, especially in management schools and in management systems, you delegate your weaknesses, right? You give your weaknesses to other people uh, in their strengths. So you learn this in management. This is not what this is about. It's about something far different, far uh, deeper in your own heart and your own soul. And what, this ha- what happens to us is this clashes what we see in the scriptures. With what we see in the scriptures, where we're taught to boast in our weaknesses, to actually glory in them, to delight in them. There's a lot of language that is, that is given to us or that we see in here that sort of makes us begin to wonder, what is this talking about? We're gonna look at one of those passages today. So we're gonna look at that in a few minutes. We're gonna learn some German and we're gonna learn some Latin. And then we'll uh, figure out uh, where we're, how we're gonna land this plane uh, by the end of our time together. So I want for us, when we think about this, your weakness is not just a competency problem. It's not just a bad habit that you have, it's something deeper. And a lot of us, what you have learned to do is to either conquer it by just working harder, or perhaps you've learned how to hide it from everybody so it's carefully concealed and tucked away, or perhaps the most devastating thing of all is you've learned how to compensate for it, and you end up using all sorts of things in order to keep from feeling the way that your weakness makes you feel. So in order to think about weakness, you also have to think about boasting because this is what it talks about. We boast in our weakness. You're gonna read this in just a minute. But boasting isn't just bragging about what you've done. That's not, it's not talking loud about something that you have done, but rather it's the thing about you. I want you to listen carefully to boast in something. The reason you would boast is because this is the thing about you that would finally make you approve of yourself. It's the thing about you that would finally make you approve of yourself. That's what he's talking about when it comes to boasting. So if you think about boasting in that way and you think about weakness, if we boast in our weakness, here's how I would define weakness. Weakness is the thing 
that you think would make you right if you could just get it right. Weakness, the weakness that's plaguing you, the weakness that we're gonna be talking about is the thing that you think if you could just get this right, then you would be right. The thing that you feel like if this could get corrected, then you would be enough. If you could get this figured out, then you would be satisfied. So this week I was uh, recommended a book uh, by a guy named Andrew Peterson. Andrew Peterson's a songwriter and he's written um, uh, several songs I love. And uh, he wrote a book called Adorning the Dark. And in Adorning the Dark, he um, talks about or he introduces to a German word and the word is Zen Zucht. Zen Zucht. This is gonna be a lot of fun. Zenzut, it literally, so uh, actually there's, I've had several conversations about uh, from people who know German a lot better than I do. Um, And there's, uh, it's it's an individual word, but it's kind of made up of parts that are actually really interesting. Zen is the idea of craving or wanting. And Zucht is thought of as either a search, but it's also has this idea of an addiction, of a painful disease, something that you can't quite seem to get. So the way, the, the way it's been translated for us, Zenzut, is basically an inconsolable longing. It's something inside of every human being that wants something that they just can't seem to satisfy. And I think all of us have this. It's something in you that either frustrates you, it's something that motivates you, it's this, this sense that we want to matter, that we want to prove ourselves, we want to give ourselves, we want to do something about it. And usually what happens is when you start to pursue this, when you finally realize there's something in you, there's this other force that tends to meet us. As soon as we start to want things and sort of move in a direction towards that, we meet a person called the inner critic. Do y'all have one of those? It's the person who's always chirping at you every time you think about doing something that you would like to do. It's the one who talks you out of it, that tells you, asks you all the questions, all the questions that debilitate you, that undermine you, that undercut you, that say, oh, I don't think you could do this. I don't think you should do this. I don't think you have enough. I don't think you are enough. I don't think you know enough. No one wants to hear from you. This happened multiple times when we first started the church. The very year, 21 years ago, first started the church, I was telling some folks, it was the first time it took a lot of courage because I wrote it in my journal, probably three years before we ever acted on it, just because I was nervous. And I would say things like, you know, I think it may possibly kind of want to, you know, be called to start a church. It was all this vague language. And one day I just wrote down, I said, all right, God, I think you're calling me to start a church. I just wrote it down. It was several years later before I could actually say those words out loud or tell someone I was doing that. And I told someone, I told a group, and I said, hey, I'm thinking uh, I'm be starting a church. And they said, who do you think you are? No question awakens your inner critic like that. Who do you think you are to be doing anything like that? Who do you think you are that you might have something to offer to someone else? Who do you think you are? And this has happened, this doesn't go away, this has happened in my life over and over and over again. When I was about, I think we were about 13 years old as a church, been doing this for 13 years. The church had grown, lots of great things had happened. I got a request from a friend of mine who was doing some stuff with uh, some pastors that were just starting out in the ministry. And he said, Mike, I'm calling a lot of pastors and I'm trying to find pastors that have been in their churches longer than 10 years and are still happy. And evidently that's a very small group of people. 
And he said, you're, uh, you seem like you're still happy. I said, I am. I still love my job. I still love what I get to do. It's still a part. He says, how have you done this? So I sat down and thought about it for a few minutes. And, um, you know, and, and I sat down and I began to write out a list of things. These are ways in which what I would tell my younger self of how to sustain and remain and stay encouraged and stay full and stay in something long enough to see things through and still find a sense of joy in it, even when it's hard, or especially when it's hard. So I wrote these things down. And as I wrote them down, I print, uh, wrote an article about it, sent it out, and it was, these guys read it and they used it. And then I remember thinking to myself, I, I think I was talking to one of our younger staff members and I told him what I was doing. He said, why have you never told us that? And I can tell you exactly why I never told them that. Because I didn't think what I had to say to them was worthy of saying to them. Somehow I didn't feel, and you realize it's not about anything you've accomplished or not accomplished. It's just this whisper in your voice. And for a lot of you, this thing that you're called to do, this inconsolable drive, this thing that you long for deeply meets its inner critic. And the inner critic always whispers something back and it's something to do with this. Just do better. And then it just continues to create this tension and this pressure in all of these things. It's your inner critic. What does your inner critic say to you? Perfection is not, it's, it's not about excellence or messy kitchens or clean kitchens. Perfection is about your perception of approval, of worth, and your demand for it and what you're willing to do to yourself and to other people in order to get it. And what we need is we need a perspective that is shaped by something other than your inner critic. A lot of you guys, this person, this voice, this chirp has the final say on everything that you, some of you have squished your dreams or your wants or what you thought you might be able to avail for others because you have talked yourself out of it. You've allowed that voice to have such a dominating place in your lives that it's just sort of allowed you to sit there un, unfulfilled and unoffered in the way that God, I think, has created you and called you to do. Perfection experience, we talked this last week, that perfection is the fullness that is found in the moment that we trust God's promise and God's call. Perfection isn't something that happens when something gets done or when this is finally fixed or when even when you go, the thing that I, if I could get it right, would make me right. That's not where perfection lies. Perfection lies in the moment that you trust in God's promise and you trust in God's call. There's a sense that comes over you. I'll tell you another story about sort of my own personal experience over the last few years. Um, I've been here 21 years. I've been in ministry for probably 28, 29 years, long time. It's funny that I don't feel like I'm old enough to say I've been doing this a long time, but I've been doing this a long time, doing this in the same place for a long time. You learn a lot of things. You make a lot of mistakes, make a lot of good decisions, make a lot of bad decisions, but you learn a lot. A lot of things happen. And I can tell you today, I still feel as called, and I, I spent two, three years ago, I sat down and did a whole about six-month journey to try and sort, Lord, do I have fresh vision for what you're doing in the future? Lord, do I have a fresh sense of call for what you're asking me to do? What's in front of me? Do I have this? And I just do these gut checks every so often. Um, I don't do them too often because that makes everybody panic, but I do them often enough where you get the idea. And so about two or three months ago, <clears throat> I woke up in the middle of the night 
I woke up in the middle of the night, and a lot of times I wake up in the middle of the night, um, I keep Food Network on in my bedroom, so usually Guy Fietti's on, and he's just on 24 hours a day doing diner's drive, so I watch a few minutes before I can sleep. Um, but what I did is I woke up uh, in the middle of the night, and sometimes I wake up and there's like the, the, the rats, you know what I'm talking about, they just come out, and they're like, all these things you gotta do, and all the things you've messed up, and all the fears, and what of this, and what about that, especially during the COVID year, you never know what's gonna happen, what's gonna unfold, with all the chaos we've been through. So sometimes I wake up with those rats and you usually could fight those off pretty well and go back to sleep. I sleep pretty well. But I woke up this particular night and I remember this so vividly, vividly enough that I leaned over and I pulled my phone out and I wrote it down uh, in my notes. And I woke up in the middle of the night and I remember this distinct thought. I am, God, I'm so thankful that you've called me to do this. Like it was that distinct. So I leaned over and I wrote it in my notes and I got the next morning and I thought about it. And just said, God, what, you know, what is this? Trying to, trying to process this. And here's what I mean. It's not about what you've done or what you've not done. It's not about what you've accomplished or what you've not accomplished. It wasn't about pressure. It wasn't about doing anything. It was just a deep sense of gratitude that somehow, that somehow God had called me to something. That there was just something that he had given me to do. It had nothing to do with anything other than that. And the reason I tell you that is not to make you think that I'm super spiritual. The reason I tell you that is to let you know it only took 28 years for that to happen. It only happens. And there were moments all along the way. But that's the first, I, I've, been, I've been grateful. I've been humbled. I've been excited. I've been joyful. But to just literally stop and go, God, I am so fulfilled without any pressure. So fulfilled in what you, there's this sense where these things, I mean, these are available only in the moments. And the way your perfection gets experienced, the way you actually learn how to live in this is you have to learn how to struggle in the right direction. Perfection is a result of struggle. This did not come because it was a, a burning bush experience. It came for 28 years of simple obedience, holding fast, staying in over all kinds of challenges and fears and all those things. They don't go away sometimes. And so there was this idea as I'm wrestling with this, you have to learn how to struggle in the right direction. We're gonna talk about this more next week, but our mission is to reach people and help them walk with God. That means wherever you are, wherever you are, our posture is to extend a hand to you and to help you take your first steps with Christ or your first steps towards Him or, your, or some steps along the journey. It's always a posture of help. And people come in and say, Mike, well, I'm this or I'm that or this is where I'm, am I welcome in your church? And I always extend a hand and say, you are absolutely welcome here. We are gonna help you struggle in the right direction. We're always gonna help you struggle in the right direction. I've stopped arguing with people about theology. I've stopped arguing with people about politics. And the reason is because the only thing I want to do is to be able to help someone take a step towards who it is, in fact, they have been created to be. I never feel like I am working at odds with someone else. Even when they're resistant, no matter how atheistic, no matter how uh, um, you know, belittling or, or belligerent they are, I always know that what we are doing is we are working in the direction for which they have been made. I always feel like I can do something because our posture is simply to help at every turn. We're never trying to prove, we're never trying to convince, we're never trying to, we're just trying to help. And what this does, and the reason is, and this is one of the foundations that I believe in, because everything finds its meaning and its purpose within its context to its relationship to God. This inconsolable longing, your zenzuk, is you were made by God and you were made for God and what you want is Him. St. Augustine says this, our hearts remain restless until they find their rest in Thee. 
What we are longing for has been made available to us, and it's not when you finally get the thing that, right that you think will finally make you right. That's not when you experience perfection. It's when you actually learn how to receive what's done. What is right about you isn't the thing that you get right. What God made right about you is himself when he gave you his son, and he made you into the right. He gave you his image, and he perfected you in that moment, and there's a process by which we experience this. That's thing one. That's next week. I got a little far ahead of myself. But the second thing is I want you to remember, just remind you of as we kind of move into this, is that perfection is experienced in a moment. And I'm becoming more and more and more convinced of this, that it's experienced in a moment. A lot of us want to create some place that we get to, we get to dwell in, when we have things figured out, when we're better parents, better spouses, better this, then we'll be able to enjoy things. And it's always found in a moment. And then what grace is, is grace brings the power of God. It brings the very power of God sufficient for the moment in the moment. There's a reason that the, the imagery throughout the Bible is this idea of new mercies are available with new mornings. New challenges require new mercies. The future requires fresh faith. You don't ever get to, you don't bank stuff up and then get to use it when you really need it. It's only available in the moment, sufficient for that moment. We have to learn how to walk on this because this is what it means to be in a relationship with God as he unfolds and reveals himself to us. We learn how to see him more fully. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul is writing in here, and he's basically had some really powerful encounters with God. And he says, hey, look, I don't want to brag. I don't want to boast. Although I could, I could tell you all kinds of stories about what I've experienced. And, and Paul could. I mean, he, he endured quite a bit. And he says, um, let me find it here. And he says that um, basically, I don't want to I don't want to do it because I want to make myself uh, look better than I am, or I don't want you to think of me in ways that you ought not to. And so here's what he says, verse seven of chapter 12. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. I was given a thorn in the flesh. So if you've heard this before and you know exactly what I'm talking about as soon as I said that, you've been given a thorn in your flesh a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. I don't think he said, God, take it away. God, take it away. God, take it away. I think there was a deep yearning, a desire for things to be different, for this struggle to go away. What I think is really interesting in this is Paul does not attribute this to God. He doesn't say God is doing this. He said, this is a thorn in my flesh that was given, that was allowed by this inner critic. And he calls it a messenger of Satan. Something so wicked that just keeps us stuck in these loops of trying to perform and figure out what we're supposed to do in order to find this thing that we're looking for, to figure out what is it gonna take to make us right? What is it gonna take to make us find the sense of approval or sense of worth or sense of value? And so we keep struggling over and he says, there's this thorn in your flesh for a lot of you, that thorn might be, it's a, and you, you, I can tell you I've got one. Things that just don't ever seem to go away. Things that you've asked God, God, and what you end up thinking is if you were a better Christian or you were a better follower of Christ, you wouldn't be struggling with what you're struggling with. Have you ever felt like that? If your faith was better, then this wouldn't be happening to you. You'd be further along than you are. Have you felt like that? There's a thorn in your flesh and he says that he's just left it there. The thing that's really interesting is Paul does not talk, people think about, oh, the thorn in Paul's flesh was some physical ailment he had. Maybe he was blind or maybe he couldn't write well or um, somebody, other people think it was a sexual struggle or other, people think it was all kinds of things. And we have no idea what it was. And I think this is the genius of Paul's letter. 
I think what people do is they just project their own struggle on what the thorn in the flesh is, and that's probably exactly what you should do. You should take whatever the thing is that you can't get by or get over, the thing that you think plagues you or holds you or keeps you, and just say, yep, that's the thorn in the flesh. And it has been allowed there in some way to do something in me. And this is what Paul says, I begged God to take this away. Have you ever done that? God, please, if you love me, if you love me, you would not let me struggle with this. But he said to me, verse nine, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. What in the world? God answers him and he says, I see it and I know it. And what I want you to learn to trust is that my grace is sufficient for you even in this struggle. Do you know why? Because this testing of your faith is producing endurance and this endurance is what is causing you to become perfect so that you lack nothing. It's in these moments when we begin to see and understand our weaknesses in this way. He goes on and he writes this in verse 10. This is why for Christ's sake I delight in the weaknesses, in my weaknesses, in insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am strong, then, I'm sorry, when I'm weak, then I am strong. A lot of us would underline that in their Bibles. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Oh, that's a good line. But we don't really think about what it actually means. What is, what is God saying to you? What is he saying to us in this? When I whispered to God and said, God, could you please take this way? And he says, no. What he's inviting me is to experience something about him, to trust him in this moment and to find his power coming to rest on me. Where does God's power rest? It rests in a moment. It rests right here, right now. It sits here. We've got to find a way to lift our eyes to see something differently than the way we often see it. God is not toying with us or creating some kind of cosmic test for you to pass or to fail. Rather, I think what we ought to see this as, this is the way in which you and I have to learn how to live in a fallen and broken world. People ask me all the time why bad things happen to people. And I'll tell you very clearly, it is because we live in a world that is fundamentally broken. It is broken. It is broken. There are things that you've had to endure and have to endure that are completely unfair. There's no necessarily reason to try to understand, to figure out why they're happening to you and not someone else or why they're happening to someone else and not you. We all experience this. For some of you, it's something you've done. Maybe it's things you've done to other people. Maybe it's things that you've done to yourself. Maybe it's things that were done to you. There's a growing number of people in our, in our, in our I mean, it's, it's prevalent, who struggle sort of on the inside of themselves, whether it's this proclivity to a depression or anxiety, or maybe you've experienced sexual trauma, or maybe something, something else that happened to you. And whatever it is, it just doesn't ever seem, you can't ever seem to shake it. And you keep saying, God, can you take this away? And perhaps they sin is let me meet you there. Let me meet you there. Let me meet you there. We often have this idea that we're gonna figure out how to let God use something in us for his glory, right? How we're gonna let this be for his glory. And we try to figure it out like we're looking for the right piece in this jigsaw puzzle that we're looking, you know, that we're trying to fit it in. And the reality is we don't even know what the box looks like. How are we gonna be able to find the piece? We have to trust, let him meet us in that moment. The point is not for us to try to figure out how this fits into some picture we already have, but how we're gonna trust him for what we do not yet know. And this is why he invites us to meet us. His power comes to rest 
on us in this. To boast in his weakness, right? To boast in our weakness. Let me make one more note that sin always results in death. It always does. That is the direction in which this river always runs. Every sin pattern that you get stuck in is always leading you towards death and separation and pulling you further and further from the things that you've been created for and the things that you were made for. So Paul comes in and says, in light of all this, I'm gonna boast in my weakness. And remember, boasting are the things that we depend on to prove our worth, the things that we would say, this is what makes me right. And he comes back in another place and he says, I will boast in nothing except the cross of Christ. You know why? Because it was the cross of Christ that made him right with God. And that's what makes us enough. If you can understand that and believe that and trust that, that's where we start to find this, this life that God is actually uh, has for us and has made available to us. When I begin to think about what is Paul talking about when he says, I'm gonna boast in my weakness. Is he just talking about like verbally throwing up on somebody when you see them in the store? You just see them in the grocery store, hey, John, how you doing? And you just blah, everything you've ever done, all the things that are wrong with you. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about vulnerability or disclosure. We're gonna talk more about in the next series. He's not talking about that. What I think Paul's suggesting when he says, I'm gonna boast in my weakness, he's saying is, we don't have to be afraid of them. You don't have to be afraid of the things that aren't fully developed or right. You don't have to be afraid of those things. You don't have to be afraid of the things that you think if you could just get them right, then perhaps you would be better. You don't have to be afraid of that. You can actually bring it into the light. You don't have to be afraid that you don't have control over your circumstances. You don't have to be afraid that you're not perfect in every way. You don't have to be afraid of that. You don't have to be afraid that you struggle with things. You don't have to be afraid that you are insufficient in things. Lord knows I got a list of things I feel insufficient, inadequate, try doing this job. I feel inadequate all the time. But you have to trust and believe this is what God has called you, fullness in the moment that you trust his call. That's where perfection happens, in the moment. When you can sense that and feel that and find that that's where it happens. You don't have to be afraid of the people that you can't please. You don't have to be afraid of the people that you can't please. Lord knows I'm a people pleaser. There's always people that I haven't pleased. In fact, one of my favorite definitions of leadership is this, that leadership is disappointing people at a rate they can tolerate. Isn't that good? Someone is always disappointed. Always. Always. You don't have to be afraid of the people that you don't please. And listen, this is not a license to be indifferent. I care deeply. I care deeply. I don't, wanna, I don't wanna disappoint or hurt anybody ever. I care deeply. But you cannot be afraid. You cannot be a slave that we're gonna learn to, to practice your righteousness, that thing about you, so that you get the approval of everybody else because it's an endless chase. Don't be afraid. He's just bringing these things into the light. Don't be afraid of trusting and believing and hoping and longing, this inconsolable longing. Don't be afraid of that. That's what I think Paul is talking about. I think we need a different perspective. Again, I, the book I learned the German word from, I also learned some Latin. I think I mentioned the title. It's called Adorning the Dark by Andrew Peterson. And he talks about uh, Johann Sebastian Bach. He, Bach. He's writing uh, from a perspective of a songwriter trying to learn how to put his craft out into the world and the fear and anxiety that comes whenever you offer something that you've made to the world around you to be criticized or whatever. And so whenever you're doing that, I guess the best person to compare yourself to when you're a songwriter is just compare yourself to Bach, right? Doesn't get any higher than that. So he's talking about Bach and he says, a lot of people are familiar with the way Bach would sign 
uh, or conclude his uh, symphonies. When he would finish writing on the sheet music, he'd write three letters on the bottom of his sheet music to sort of sign off. And you might have heard this before. The three letters were S-D-G. Those were the initials he wrote. It means sola deo gloria. To God alone be the glory or glory to God alone. We go, dude, that is cool. That's what we all want, right? That's what, that would satisfy this longing. God, everything we do, let it be for your glory. Let it be for your glory. And what happens when you start off like that, right? Same thing that happened to me. When someone says, how want to do this for your glory? The voice says, who do you think you are? Do you not remember what you did last month or last year or two years ago? Do you not remember that you said this or did that, that you're really kind of a hypocrite and the inner voice just starts having a feeling? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? This inconsolable longing to matter and to contribute something of worth is confronted by your inner critic. And this hypercritical, overcalculating voice talks you back into fear. And this is where a lot of us have lived. How many things have you not stepped out or tried or pursued because your inner critic taught you out of it? Because that thorn in the flesh kept reminding you that you're not sufficient instead of God's grace is. How many times has that happened? It's really time to put an end to that. I think what's really interesting, a lot of people know that what Bach signed at the end, a lot of people don't realize what he wrote at the beginning. You can imagine after you wrote like some incredible thing that Bach wrote, you know, just like, and then thinking, how do you top that, right? Have you ever done, how do you top that? It's crippling. And what they say is that Bach often at the top at this bottom, he wrote, sola de gloria, glory to God alone. That was what he hoped would happen at the end. That's a great beginning. It's actually a paralyzing beginning. Will it be enough? Will it be sufficient? And it says at the top of his music, he wrote the Latin phrase, Jesu juva. Jesus help. What an incredible picture. To start off something, a clean sheet of paper, the fear of trying to produce something or outdo what you've done or whatever the pressure you feel, especially as a perfectionist. And be able to look at that and find, oh, I don't have to outdo myself. I don't have to do this. Jesus help. Jesus help. To stop letting the inner critic have the last word and instead start letting Jesus, the King himself, have the first word in your journey. To be able to trust in that moment his call and his promise that he has made you and created you just like you are. That he has created you. That was one of those freeing things. I spent eight years of ministry trying to be other pastors, compare myself to all the big guns. And I know some of you have done that. You spend all your life comparing yourself to everybody else around you instead of just going, this is what God has called me to do. A pastor who can't even complete his sentence sometimes gets used. And everybody has something. And some of them are worse than others, but there's a thorn. And what I've learned is when I learn how to embrace the struggle, I have found and continue to find that his grace is sufficient. And it is when you begin to learn that his power rests on you, you find more and more and more fulfillment which is the point of perfection. My weakness and insufficiency is not an indictment of my worth and neither is yours. My imperfections 
are not harsh reminders that I am not perfect. Neither are yours. But rather, these are beautiful invitations and beautiful realities that we do not have to be. You realize that his glory is not demonstrated in my capacity to pull it off without him. His glory is not demonstrated in you by your ability to pull it off without him. His glory is demonstrated in you when he is seen primary and you start that by looking to his voice first and say, Jesus, help. Jesus, help. I want us to take a few moments. I want you to consider what your thorn might be. What is your struggle? What's the thing that you've been begging God to get rid of and he hasn't done it or hasn't seemed to have done it yet? What if in that moment, that he has something that he wants you to see and something that he wants you to trust that you have thought you will finally feel satisfied or better or right when that goes away. And he's actually making a way for you to experience something in the moment that you didn't think was possible, that his grace is actually sufficient for you right where you are. And it doesn't start by listening to all the things that you've done wrong. It starts with a prayer, Jesus help. We've got to fix our eyes on him. He is the author and he is the perfecter of our story. Father, I come to you right now. I know there are folks who are listening who have worked so hard to protect themselves from anything um, that smells of weakness. And perhaps their lives were carefully controlled and managed but yet there's this zenzut, this inconsolable longing. And it's not for a better house or better managed finances or a perfect wife or kids or husband, or it's for you. It is literally, deeply for you. So Jesus, help us to trust it in this moment to experience what it is that we are all looking for, life with you. So Father, I just ask in these moments you would remind us, um, you would meet us, and that for some, your grace would be seen and felt as perfectly sufficient. So God, I ask this. Remember your son Jesus, who is our king. I want to invite you to stand as we close our time together.